Um, turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, and we look today at, uh, you notice we're creeping closer and closer towards the end of Ephesians. I feel like we just started Ephesians like a month ago, but we are already approaching towards its end. Well, Ephesians chapter 5, we're looking at verses 15 through 21. And to me, in the book of Ephesians, this is one of the most significant passages we find. And the reason why is because it, uh, if we understand this rightly, it holds, I think, a theological key for how we ought to live and how we are empowered to live. If I told you that as a believer, um, I could predict that you have some struggles. You have struggles with sin. You have struggles with, uh, you know, with worldliness. You are tempted to, to not trust in the Lord, but to trust in your own abilities or on your own capacities or hope for your own circumstances. You find yourself uh, sometimes identifying yourself in ways that are not necessarily characterized by the songs that we sang. Being in Christ and being of the Lord, being loved and forgiven by God himself, a holy God that has reached down to us to rescue us from our sins and to call us his children. Life doesn't always, as a Christian, feel victorious, nor does it lend itself naturally to us increasing in holiness thoughtfulness, and in devoted nearness to our God. And I think one of the essential elements of that is exactly what we look at today, is the question of how to conduct our lives in ways that, that allow us to be filled by the Spirit of God. Or let me say it more accurately, to be filled... Um, in all good things, in all excellent thoughts, in every tangible and wondrous motivation and worship, to be filled up with those things that are the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. And it's, it's a, it's, I, I think uh, it's one of my favorite portions of Ephesians. Um, it'll lend us, uh, it'll kind of put us on a trajectory to talk about um, our interactions in terms of the household codes, um, wives and husbands and children and bosses and employees, all of those things will come. But here you have active commands about how we should walk, what we do, how we walk and live in such a way that honors the God that has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you have active commands. And then you have this one phrase that I'm going to, I'll just let you know, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I take the phrase, right, um, of being filled with the Spirit as meaning being filled by the Spirit. That's to come, you know, live by the Spirit. Um, I take it that way. And that's a passive command. In, in other words, you have on the one hand, this is how you ought to do. This is what you ought to put away. This is the things that you ought to put on. But on the other hand, you have then this let God, the Holy Spirit, fill you with the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. And let that flesh out in your lives. If we, if we try to master just these few verses in our lives, I, I think you find your life rich beyond comparison, right? You, you find that the joy of salvation exudes throughout your being. You find yourself impervious to difficulties and pain. It not, not saying that you find yourself incapable of feeling pain or difficulty, trial or tragedy, but that you find yourself overcoming because of what Christ has done for you. This is how valuable this particular passage is. It's about living by the Spirit. Thus the title, right? Live by the Spirit. And I think we, we kind of move through the passage this way. An interesting passage. The first is to live carefully, verses 15 and 16. Then to live purposefully, and we have that phrase in that section about uh, uh, being filled with the Spirit. And then the final part, I think verses uh, 19 through 21, is about the manifestation. What does it look like if we are filled by the Spirit? And so 
Let's read this passage, pray, and let's just dive straight in. Chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, starting in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to this portion of your word this morning, would you open the eyes of our heart to receive the word implanted? Lord, may we understand, Lord, with with carefulness and with sobriety, Lord, um, what it means to walk in a manner that's worthy of being called out from darkness into your marvelous light. And even as we think of the wealth and the riches that we receive in forgiveness of sins and being called children of God, Lord, let us live not just by our own strength, but from the fullness with which the Spirit provides. Let us overflow, Lord, indeed, with songs and spiritual singing and encouraging one another and devotion from the heart. Let us give thanks regularly, Lord, Let us submit to one another. Let us care for each other. And let us live out this Christian life in whatever particular circumstances, difficulties we encounter. Lord, help us to be overcomers, not because of our own power or because of our own strength, but because of him who has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, give us victory. We want to live the Christian life not just tolerate a decently religious one. Give us victory to live in a way that honors our Savior and the gospel that has rescued our souls and given us life, eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we look to this portion of scripture, um, um, it's, it's constructed interestingly. It begins with a series of commands that are active, but, but contrast this thing with that thing. And that's what we mean by living carefully. If you look at verse 15, it begins by talking about this careful walk. And it says there that we are to walk carefully in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Look, or behold, is the translation there. Look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's a command, and it's a direct command to walk or to live out this life with great care. The term careful, right, that adverb, signifies that you are to live your life in a manner that is precise, that is thoughtful, that is accurate. In other words, and this should not surprise us at this point in the book of Ephesians, because everything that we have seen starting in chapter 4 onward, right, was put away, right, the thinking, the way of the Gentile, right, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their, of their minds. I mean, chapter 4 in particular is so filled with mental language, how they think, what's in their hearts. That's what fleshes out. And if we think of those things, then it makes perfect sense that Paul here would write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that you need to be careful about how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. That there is an urgency and a significance to how you think about your walk. And again, Walk is illustrated by how you get from point A to point B in your life. It's the manner of your living, your lifestyle, what you're characterized by. Not just the fact that you get from point A A to point B, but how you get there. It's all of it, right? It's how you live and conduct yourself. And the first thing, the first contrast is not as unwise, but as wise. Carefully walk in wisdom. Now, wisdom is connected um, to a number of things that we want to kind of just make mention of. Can you even read that? Okay. 
I can't read that from here, but uh, fortunately it's in my notes, right? Wisdom is connected with the gospel, with our salvation. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Man, that in itself is so worthy for us to meditate on, but you get the idea that the gospel, the message of salvation, is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christ paid his blood so that we might Right? We might have our sins forgiven, paid in full, according to the wealth, the riches of his grace. You notice the terminology of purchase. You notice the terminology of wealth. And it was the precious blood of Christ that rescued us. And then verse 8 there, which he lavished upon us. It's not like Christ said, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of my riches. He lavished it upon us. Right? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The reason why I want to underline that thought at the end of verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, again, terminology of our mental faculties. How did the gospel come to us? The Lord gave us wisdom, insight, understanding, so that we might know what it means to walk in him. That we might recognize our own sinfulness and might confess that God is right. And that we deserve nothing good from his hand. And that we might recognize his gracious love. That he is willing to lay down his life so that we might be forgiven and made new. Wisdom is connected to our salvation in Christ. And I want to say that because as, as Paul is saying, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. He is saying there's a manner of living that even the Christian can fall into in periods of time where he lives unwisely as if the gospel no longer mattered. You've experienced that if you're a Christian. I've experienced that. When it almost feels like, oh man, I know Christ loves me and cares for me, but I really need to, I need to fix this in my own strength. I know God has, has delivered me from my own sinfulness and granted me life and identity in him, but, you know, I really need this person to like me. You, you know what I mean? Like, like we find ourselves walking in, in the unwisdom of seeking the things of our own strength and power and forgetting that all wisdom points us to the things of the Lord. Wisdom is also connected. I'll move a little faster here. Did that change? Okay. Wisdom is also connected to the idea of walking or living in a manner that's worthy of our Christian newfound faith. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In those two passages we looked at so far, those cross-references, have you noticed the, the direct connection of our mental faculties, what we know, who we know, what we know about what God has done for us, right? Like when we know these things, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that allows, that allows us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we're called. Wisdom is also connected, right? In Proverbs 1, 1 through 4, it's probably one of the most classic passages on wisdom. It's the introduction of what the Proverbs are all about. And it says there, wisdom is connected to skillful living. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction, now listen, in wise dealings, in righteousness, in justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Wisdom has a purpose. It's not just so that you seem like all wise, you know, like that weird hermit guy, right? I don't know why that is or what that comes from. I don't know if that's Hindu, whatever. You go to like some mountain cave and some dude has been living off the dew of the universe, right? And he's just kind of alm and he's supposed to have some kind of wisdom. That's not how scripture describes wisdom. Scripture describes wisdom as understanding, as thoughtfulness, as thinking through the intentions and the purposes and the motives of life and shaping your life in such a way that you live skillfully, right? Look, 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 at, look at what we just read. 
wise dealings, righteousness, justice, equity, that you live your life in such a way that is appropriate um, for one that is called to represent God, the God of the universe. And even if you're simple, the scriptures are wise to give you prudence, knowledge, discretion, even if you're young, to give you guidance, to think rightly so that you might live rightly. That's what wisdom is. It's knowledge applied to living, skillful, purposeful, thoughtful, and, right, and connected with our salvation. Let me ask you, just even what we read in Proverbs 1, does that sound like your life? Wise dealings, righteousness, justice, equity. Is that what will characterize your living, right? Prudence, knowledge, discretion. Or do you find yourself more likely being described, right, or self-described as being unwise, being the opposite of those things, being unrighteous? Like wisdom, right? Living carefully means living carefully to walk in wisdom, right? And the contrast is don't walk as the unwise, walk as the wise. The next contrast that will come up, right? Make the best use of time. Verse 16. Um, our ESV says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There's an expansion on the idea of walking carefully in wisdom. We ought to walk carefully in wisdom. Why? Because we ought to redeem the time. That, that is the literal phrase, and I think some of our older versions or translations will use that phrase, redeem the time. And the idea of redeeming the time, it's a marketplace term, it means to buy it up. It implies that it has value, but it's also limited. You know, like uh, sometimes like McDonald's will have like that, that special. We are just talking, I was talking to uh, the twins as we were walking in about how like, remember the McDonald's used to have 99 cent drinks, any size? Any size, bro. You get a big old giant one, right? And so anytime I was thirsty, I would just cruise into a McDonald's on my way home, right? After church, everyone's thirsty. Go through the McDonald's drive-thru, and everyone gets a 99 cents large drink. It's a great deal. They stopped doing that. Apparently, it was for a limited time only. See, that, that idea of buying something up when it's of value and it's of limited duration, that's what is seated here. <clears throat> we are to make the best use of our time. We are to soak up every opportunity for doing good. The term for time here is that term that means seasons. It is saying that there is a limited portion of time that is granted to you. Right? Time is an essential commodity. It's a resource. And it's in limited supply. You know, can I say this? This is the reason why I like football, and I'm not that big on football. You guys know the difference, right? American football versus soccer. One, one of the things that bugs me about soccer, I don't know when the game's going to end. I know a bunch of you guys play soccer, a bunch of you guys are soccer fan. I have no idea what that's about. It's like, dude, we're down by one. We're pressing. Do we have time? I don't know. So what is this, man? And then we shoot, we score. Yeah, is the game, you know, is, is regulation time over? No. Well, when is it over? I don't know. They come back, they score, and they're like, oh, dude, we lost, right? Because we're probably out of time. I'm not sure yet, right? Like, what in the world is happening? In American football, right, you got less than two minutes. You got the ball. You're down one score. You got to go 80 yards. Well, I know exactly what's happening. This is situational football. You got to move quickly, be decisive. Don't take a sack. Don't take a sack, right? You know what you're doing because time is running out. American football, more closely related to gospel truth. <laughs> it is, at least it is a better illustration of making the best use of our time. Our time is limited. You are literally on the clock. And yeah, I guess like football, we don't know how much time is really left in, in, our, in our life clock. But we are on the clock. Our days are numbered. And we only live once. And so I think Paul's point is if we are to walk carefully and to walk in wisdom, part of wisdom and its expression in terms of what we do with the commodity and the use of our time is that we are making the best of the time that we have. And he gives us a reason why that's significant or important. Because the days, he says, are evil. Because the days are evil. 
He means by that, I think, two things. One, that the days are filled with moral evil. And we see that happening in the Middle East. There, there is a moral difference. And I, I'm not, I'm not pro-Israel, yay, Israel, right? Like, or pro-Palestinian, yay. I mean, like, they're people groups. They're sinners. They do crazy stuff. But you can't, you can't organize an attack on civilians. That's unacceptable. I get it. I mean, Israel hasn't always been good to Palestine. You, you cannot, or there's a difference between armed combatants against armed combatants killing each other. That in itself is a tragedy. But you can't just go into a town and start killing people in hopes of getting your political aims done. That, that kind of evil, right, is in our world. A moral evil. There, there is a, a spiritual evil that sets its, its path against everything that is Christian and honorable and Christ-honoring. There, there is threats all around you to your spiritual well-being. There's sin and temptation constantly, right? There is challenges to your sanctification. And as we often like to say, your sanctification is not automatic. In other words, momentum and time will not make you more godly or gracious. In fact, it's the opposite. If you just let momentum take its course, you will not become more godly. I promise you. You will not become more spiritual. You will not become more mature. You will not become more gracious. Now, you let momentum, if you're just waiting for time to pass, and you think, well, okay, in 20 years, I'll be a lot more godly. Well, what makes you more think that that will just happen automatically? The command is for you to live carefully now and every day that you are given, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The temptation constantly is to get worse, not better. So we're talking about the days are evil. There's moral evil all around us. We are prone that way. And we need to recognize that. We need to be careful and thoughtful and intentional because evil is the natural course of how we will live. But there's also circumstantial evil. It's not always sin, right, that, uh, that bogs us down or defeats us. Sometimes it's suffering. By circumstantial evil, we mean evil in the sense of all the tragic things that can happen all around us. And the days are set towards tragedy, right? The world around you is broken and, and threatens your physical well-being or the well-being of others. Pain, death, tragedy, they're a constant reality we live with in this life. Your long life is not guaranteed. So the oddity of us the inconsistency of the Christian is that sometimes we live as if all the time in the world is given to us, as if eternal life means that I get to do whatever I want in this world, and eventually, at some point, I will turn to the things of the Lord. But can I say this? The only thing that Scripture affirms to us again and again is that your time on earth will be filled with some pain. That's the only thing I could say for certain. It is merely a matter of time and opportunity before tragedy comes knocking on your door, All right? Statistically, you know, diseases like cancer, I think it's still like one in three. And I always, I always tell people, just look to the, or don't even look, just think about the person on that side, the person on that side. One of you three will have cancer, All right? That's, that's significant. That's just cancer. I mean, we throw in other diseases and weird stuff and, you know, bowel issues. I don't know. Throw in whatever else you like. And it continues to, to mount up that this world is not, is, is not meant for eternity or for glory or for delight or for joy. Live carefully, Christian. This is for you. Right? Live carefully, seeking wisdom, seeking expertise in how to conduct yourself because the time is running out. And the days are evil. That's to live carefully, right? So that's the first active command, I think. The second is to live purposefully, verses 17 through 18. And if we are to live purposefully, again, you have these contrasts. Don't do this, but do this, right? Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Because the days are evil, we ought to walk in wisdom. And as we're careful to walk in wisdom, we will recognize that 
we should not be living in foolishness. Do not be foolish. Um, the term is different from the earlier phrase being unwise. Unwise is literally that, the alpha, you know, privative or the, the prefix that is the negative. It's like putting an un in front of something in the Greek, right? It is literally wise, not wise, right? It was unwise, you know, don't be unwise, be wise. Um, here, the term is do not be foolish, and it's a different term. Foolishness in Scripture doesn't denote just an absence of knowledge, insight, or wisdom. Foolishness denotes moral corruption. I got a couple of verses for you for you to look at. Um, I talk about these often because this is the definition of what it means to be a fool according to the Word of God. Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1, both almost say the exact same thing, slightly different wording. But it says there, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's, that's moral corruption. That's not just he doesn't know better. He has convinced himself there is no God. Regardless of what Romans 1 says, that the fingerprints of God are everywhere so that there's a suppression going on in his sinful heart. The fool will say in his heart, not just out loud, but to his own soul, there is no God. In fact, he needs there to be no God. Why? Because they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. No, not one. And it continues on. As, uh, as Romans 3 talks about how there is none that do good. It's a quotation from Psalm 53, um, one and following. This is what it means to be foolish. Do not be that. So if we take the, the, the kind of uh, the categories of foolishness in Scripture, it's a spiritual, it's a moral condition. And if we take it that way, then we're talking about being godless. He says in his heart, there is no God. He tries to live as if God doesn't matter, right? He is senseless. Right? He, is, he is not self-controlled because he is his own God. He gets to do what he wants. If you are the God of your own universe, right, you might do crazy things. You know, like you play those video games where you're a character in some world, like Animal Crossing. One of my, my children, I won't say which, kind-hearted, gentle, mostly, and then they play Animal Crossing, and they just keep hitting their neighbors with the net. They're like, well, why are you doing that? Like, you know, just to make them mad. And then they get the mad, you know, kum, 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 kum kind of bubble, right, and stuff like that. And it's like, if you had the power, right, to be God, what, how would you live? And I think the atrocities that comes with that kind of unlimited power for a sinful human being it's outrageous, but that's what the fool is attempting to do, trying to live as if God does not get a say-so in their lives, to, to refuse any acknowledgement of a higher power or purpose, right, so that they are free and independent of anything that's called a God. He lives as if there's no eternity, there's no consequence. He lives based on his definition of what is right and wrong. He is godless, salvationless. And he is hopeless. That should not characterize Christians, right? Those who have been saved by the blood of Christ recognize that this world has purpose. Our existence has purpose. Our identity is purposeful because of who Christ is, what he has done for us. So that out of thankfulness and out of purposefulness, we want to live for him. See, verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other, oh, sorry. In other words, uh, it, it, the contrast is between living a godless, like as if God didn't matter kind of life, versus the purposeful life that says that I want to know, understand, appreciate what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of the Lord? And I know we have this sometimes unhealthy preoccupation with the will of God, in my life, meaning like, you know, um, what does God want me to do? Where is his personal guidance? I mean, who should I date? You know, where should I work? Um, where should I buy a house or 
What laundry detergent should I use? I don't know. Whatever thing that you're thinking about and contemplating is significant. You think of the will of God sometimes like in, a, in this, this wrongful way where it's about God giving you guidance. Lord, what is your will? Go this direction. I will. Oh, I'm at a McDonald's. And look, drinks are 99 cents. <laughs> right? Like that's the way we think about God's will. But we should think about God's will more generally. In other words, what does the Lord desire of us? What is his will for your life? And because he's a good God, we can believe that he wills what is ultimately good for you, what is ultimately good for me. He doesn't desire things that are tragic, although he will allow tragedy to come into your life. He doesn't, he doesn't will that you go through difficulty, although he will send difficulty into your life. But the ultimate purpose of God's will for you is to direct you in paths that are good and excellent so that he is working all things for his delight, for his glory, and for your good. The simple question to ask, right, about living and trying to understand the will of the Lord is, does this, does this act or this thought, does it reference my salvation in Christ? Does eating and drinking, does that bring glory to God in my thankfulness? Because whether we eat or drink, right, we do all things to the glory of God. Does your schooling, does it reference the goodness of God and his glory? Your work, is there a reference to who God is and that impacts the way that you approach that? In the things that you play, the sports, the leisures, right, does it, does, is God involved in that? Or are you like the fool that pretends that God is not involved so long as I am doing this? In your driving or your singing, your relaxing, I mean, in anything, in everything that you do, is there a reference to the living God? Because if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian saved by God's grace, this is what we live for. So that we might understand and work out the will of the Lord for us. We are trying to live purposefully, not wastefully, right? Not foolishly, but intentionally. Placing everything, focusing everything to, is God pleased with this? How do I give God glory in this? And you know, just so that you understand, I'm not saying that, oh yeah, so see, you shouldn't watch football. I mean, for all of us college fans of local teams yesterday, we probably shouldn't have watched football, right? But, right, I'm not saying you can't watch football. I'm, saying, I'm not saying you can't do this or go watch that Taylor Swift movie concert thing, Right? Go do things that bring you delight. But as it brings you delight, do you give God glory for it? Is it a good thing that the Lord has given to you? Is God at the center, right, intentionally and purposefully of everything that you experience in this world? Not foolishness, but purposefulness, right? Not wastefulness, but filled by the Spirit. Look at the verse 18, and that's that, that's that key phrase that we want to focus on. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, um, but instead be filled, right? But be filled with the Spirit. Let's talk about that first part, do not get drunk with wine, um, because that's debauchery. Paul has been dealing, right, with the conduct of the pagans, right? We, we said in chapter 4, when he says, you know, um, that you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do. That's verse 17 of chapter 4. In the futility of their minds, darkened in understanding, in understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. This is significant because... Because he has been dealing with, right, the Gentile walk, or maybe in our vernacular we'd say the pagan walk, the sinner's manner of living. And one thing he keys in on, and don't get overly impressed by this, because it's simply him speaking of one pagan kind of, you know, enjoyment, and saying that unlike that, in his key, and the primary thing he's trying to get to is the debauchery versus, right, the spirit-filled reality, the joy and the contentment that comes in being filled by the spirit. But he says plainly, 
right? But he says plainly, do not get drunk with wine. Listen, we are thoughtful, I think, in terms of the scriptures, uh, to not go beyond the scriptures in terms of what we proclaim from the pulpit. And so, I, you know, I'm a teetotaler. You know what that means? That means I carry tea. I don't, no, it, it means that I, I don't drink alcohol. It's that, that's not a, you don't go, oh, that's so godly. No, I, I could not drink alcohol and punch people in the face every day. You don't know I'm godly. I'm just, I'm just saying I don't, right? <laughs> Perhaps you do. That, that in itself is not sin. Scripture doesn't speak against the drinking of wine, but it always speaks against being drunken. So can I just say that plainly for you? That in your enjoyment of your alcoholic adult beverage, right, if intoxication is part of the pleasure, that's sin. That's just, that's just I don't know how to say it clearer than what Scripture is saying, right? If, if intoxication is a leisure, right, is a means of, of relaxation, or is a competition, or is an entertainment, or, or sin, 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 that's just sin, right? Can you drink wine? Yeah. Can you have a little alcohol? Can I have a little flambe? I'm not even sure if that's the right, if that's the right, but I think it is, right? Like you burn alcohol or something. Like, yeah, like whatever, you know? Can I be drunk? Absolutely not. Because there's something about the, the, the prohibition of being drunken that, that defined here is wasteful. Do not be drunk with wine, right? For that is debauchery. It's an interesting, interesting statement. I think in our English, debauchery can mean a lot worse, right, than, um, than I think, well, no, no, that's probably not the best way to express that. Debauchery, uh, other translation would say dissipation, and the idea behind this word, again, you have a normal word, and then you have kind of the negative prefix, right? And the normal word in the term that is translated in our ESV, debauchery, is the word that means to preserve, to protect, to keep something. And then you add the un- and it means to be wasteful. But it is used in the context of senseless wastefulness. And I like how uh, Lao Anita, um, uh, a Greek uh, dictionary, how they define this term. It says that astotia signifies behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. These are senseless deeds, reckless deeds, recklessness. Maybe it might help you to know that, um, that in our ESV, in Luke 15, 13, of the prodigal son, it says that he took his father's money and he went off to riotous living. That term, riotous living, that's this term. It means a wastefulness, right, that is senseless, that, that has no thought or concern for the consequences of an action. And it's saying that this is the problem with drunkenness. It, it depresses the sensibilities. And it allows us to do stuff. I mean, you, you, if you have unbelieving friends, you've heard them use the excuse that, oh, yeah, sorry, I was a little, you know, I was a little tipsy, and so I probably shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. And it's like, that's the point. Like, there's a, there's a recklessness that comes from allowing your senses to be depressed incapable of thinking with sobriety. So scripture talks about sobriety often, spiritual sobriety. Being drunk is the opposite of that. But again, I said that's not the key. The key is what is to come in contrast, right? Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. That's so wasteful. It's such a poor use of your human existence, especially if you're a Christian, of your redeemed human existence, Right? Such a poor use of the life that Christ has rescued you from. But instead, and here's the contrast, be filled by the Spirit. RESV says, but be filled with the Spirit, which is the traditional translation. And um, I, I take it to mean that we are to be filled by the Spirit. And let me just say a couple things of what it is not. This is not be filled with a spiritual exuberance. right? Because you might be tempted to think, well, I'm not going to be drunk with wine, but now I get to be drunk with the Holy Spirit. Oh, right? And you think that's ridiculous, but there have been people, you know, self-proclaimed Christians who have barked in the Holy Spirit, who have fell down in uncontrollable laughter 
in the Holy Spirit. It looks like exactly what we're talking about, that this, this does not mean, it does not mean that you are drunk, but just in a different way, in a spiritual way, as if the Holy Spirit is here to make you lose control. Now, everything in Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit, and remember the Holy Spirit is a, is a he, not a thing, right? He instructs us, right? He, um, he convicts us. He ministers to us. He gives us the scriptures and enlightens our eyes to understand it. He makes things clearer, more sober, more excellent, and more thoughtful. Not the opposite. He doesn't dull our spiritual experience. He enhances and focuses it. So it's not a spiritual filling of some exuberance. It is also not spiritual fuel. Be filled, look, 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 look right? With the Holy Spirit, right? Now I'm going to, you know, and we would joke around in VBS, we joke around and I'm making fun of, what were they called? Like the Power Brothers or something like that? There was these like guys that looked like pro wrestlers. This is back in, I don't know, 20 years ago. Um, they're probably with the Lord now. But then they used to be like, oh, let, you know, pray for the Holy Spirit's power. And then they would lift everything, but they would really lift everything. I was just living, you know, a fake styrofoam rock, right, for VBS. But they would lift like real heavy things and stuff. And, and they would claim that it's because the Holy Spirit's filling them as if he is some force. Like he is this kind of weird, right, impersonal power. Like he's this, I don't know, universal goo that we could tap into. That sounds more like, you know, you know all the, the, the Eastern re pagan religions about, you know, I tap into the power of the universe. What kind of nonsense are you talking about? Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, not some power substance that we're praying to have. Oh, Lord, give me more of your Holy Spirit so that I could be stronger against temptation. Come on, man. Treat him with a dignity as a third person of the Trinity. We are to be filled, and I don't think it's with, because I think it implies that, that almost like he's a substance or he gives us some experience or he does something like that, but we are to be filled by the Spirit for the work of service and to bring God glory with our redeemed lives. You know, the... Maybe one way to help us is to think about the, the vocabulary of filling in the book of Ephesians. If you turn back a couple, I, I don't know why I didn't make slides for these verses, but maybe it'll help you. Ephesians chapter 1, um, verse 22 and 23, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, meaning Christ, which is his body. The body, right, the church is Christ's body on earth. And it says this, The fullness of him who fills all in all. So that the church represents his fullness. So fullness is not a substance. It's not a thing. It, it is the sense that, that we get to see a greater uh, vision of what Christ is like in the body of, of Christ when we gather together. Ephesians 3.19, in Paul's prayer, he prays for the Ephesian Christians that they might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, again, not filled with some kind of substance that is Holy Spirit goo, right? But to be filled up with the sensibility, with the insight, with the knowledge of what the Holy Spirit, what he can accomplish. Let me give you a parallel passage that hopefully will help us with that. The reason why I'm saying this is parallel is because even as we're reading verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, the next thing that it says in verse 19 is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody, um, to the Lord with your heart. Well, look at, we'll pass that because I already passed that, sorry. Um, look at Colossians, uh, that's Colossians 3.16, right? Okay, look at Colossians 3.16. There it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right, like that second part is almost identical to what is stated here, right, in verse 19 and 20. So the first part then, the part that is parallel, is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That is parallel to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And when we, by the time we get uh, to chapter 6, in the armor of God, it is the Spirit of God, right? The word of God that is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit's, one of his primary and excellent ministries 
is to minister to word, the word to our souls. And you think about this. If the word of God is indwelling us richly, and that's what the Spirit does for us, then we begin to meditate on it. We begin to think. Didn't we just talk about chapter 4, having all that vocabulary of mental exercise, that the walk of the Gentiles is first and foremost, right, founded upon the way that they think. So similarly, the Christian, the redeemed child of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, that we, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are filled by the Spirit with knowledge, insight, wisdom. That's the things that we have been looking at with a mindset that comes from the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It's a simple formula. You think, and then you feel. You think, and then you act. What you think determines how you live. And that's why understanding versus ignorance, right? Wisdom versus unwisdom. Um, That's why carefulness and intentionality and the best use of our time, right? Um, So that we walk in wisdom, not in folly and foolishness, that we know that we're knowledgeable about how to live in the will of our God. So these commands to walk in a way that is not like this, but is like this, right? Is, Is, I think, accentuated by the fact that in the passive, we are to be filled by, it's passive, we are filled by the Spirit. That He gives us a sense of purpose, fullness, satiation, Um, intentionality. I mean, all of these things, right? The Holy Spirit seals the believer. That was Ephesians 1.13. He indwells the believer. That's Romans 8, right? He baptizes. We've been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, and he fills us. And I think it's equivalent to saying that that if we are to to, to, to live a life that is filled by the Spirit, it's similar to saying we walk by the Spirit. That what he instructs us in wisdom and knowledge and insight, like we meditate on, we live out so that he is pleased. And if you look at what, what the characteristic of a life lived and walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5, 16 through 18, you walk by the Spirit and you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's such a simple formula for how we overcome Right? As believers, as redeemed child, children of God. It is not your own willpower, your own intelligence, but it's the wisdom that is gained from meditating on God's word and thinking who God is, singing praises, do what, it, do what scripture speaks to do, because when the word of Christ dwells in you richly, then you understand how to teach, admonish each other. You understand how to worship and how to minister to one another. You live out that purposeful life. So, All right, so we said live carefully, live purposely, and we'll do this last one fairly quickly. Because I think verses 19 through 21 is really the manifestation. In other words, what does this look like if you're filled by the Spirit? Well, what is your life going to look like? And one, oh wait, did I put all of them? Oh, how convenient. I just put all of them right there, right? It, It looks like this. There are five participles, and by participles, I think English we might use gerunds. It's the ing form of verbs. It's a verbal noun. You get it? If you don't, ask me later. We don't have time, all right? But the idea is that there are five descriptions of what it looks like when a life is filled by the Spirit. Verse 19, it picks it up right away. Addressing, see, that's the first participle. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing translates a word that just means to speak. It means that our speaking out lyrically, right, our singing out, of particular words verbally has a means of ministering to one another. This is an aspect of one anothering. Did you know when you showed up this morning, your singing is an aspect of one anothering? It is, because in the corporate context, as you sing out words, if they are true, if they are excellent, don't you sing our praise songs and our hymns, and are you not reminded of the goodness of God in the gospel of Christ? If you are not, you're probably not singing. Or the words are just, right? Like you need coffee, right? 99 cents McDonald's, right? If you are thinking 
the lyrical content, the words behind what we are singing that is meant to encourage you and corporately to encourage one another. We are praising corporately. That's what it looks like, right? That's what it looks like horizontally for us um, um, to be filled by the Spirit. Secondly, moving quickly, right? Oh, B is worshiping wholeheartedly. Look at the second part of verse 19. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, it comes from the deepest part of the wholeness of your being. Matthew 12, Jesus says, you brood of vipers, you know, you speak good. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of evil treasure brings forth what is evil. You know, our, our whole life as believers begins in the heart. What we meditate on, what we think about, what we believe. So I, I could reduce our, our sanctification to this statement. Our struggles with sin, that's a heart problem. It's an issue of thinking and meditating upon how bad is sin. All right? Our struggles with our devotion, our worship, or lack thereof, Again, it's a heart problem. Think in your souls, how good is the God of my salvation? And the deeper we are meditating upon how bad, how sinful is sin, how good and gracious and excellent is God, then our hearts begin to meditate and think, and our, our, our response, our motives, our affections, those begin to change. So the purpose of singing has both the horizontal, that it's a one another, but also has the vertical, that is from the whole heart, is unto the Lord. Third, thanksgiving constantly, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the frequency, it's always, the extent, it's in everything, good or bad, we give thanks to God. We give thanks, right, for the experiences that we have. We give thanks for the sorrows that we suffer. We give thanks that God is good to us in family, friends, and church. We give thanks for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for us, his undeserved love for us. Thanksgiving unlocks the, the joyful contentment of the Christian heart. And a lot of times our discontent, right? I don't know if it's because, I don't want to put causality to it, but it's almost always parallel to our lack of thanksgiving complaining, discontent. Man, that's not, that's not being filled by the Holy Spirit. That's being filled by the spirit of lust, pleasure, and envy. That's from James 4, right? Finally, all right, I'll close with this. Being filled by the Spirit, it's manifestation. The gospel manifestation of being filled by the Spirit looks like submitting reverently. Look at verse 21. It, it, and some of your English translations miss this, but it is, again, a participle. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this is going to set us up for all the different submission things that are to come. Wives are submit to their, their husbands, children to, to the parents, servants to their employees, or vice versa, employees to their masters, right? Like, like all of those things. And the thing that we might miss is that last part, out of reverence for Christ. We live in an ordered world where we, all of us, have to submit to some authority over us. And that is a good thing that God has placed in this universe, and we are to do that out of reverence for Christ. Wives submit to their husbands, as to the Lord will be the phrase. Children submit to the parents in the Lord. Servants, obey your masters or bosses, as you would Christ. See, it's always about reverence for Christ. Being filled by the Spirit. This is what the Christian walk should look like. This is what the gospel gives to us. This is what our lives should be characterized by, by joyful singing, worship, thankfulness, submitting, because we live carefully and we live purposefully. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time in the word, and we ask that you would bless the rest of this Lord's Day. Unto your glory, may the word of God indwell us richly to great benefit and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.